All right, Galatians chapter 1. Last week we... No. When was it? Two, three weeks ago. We started this. Uh, we looked at the introduction. We looked at Paul. We looked at Galatia. We looked at all the, the surrounding... Uh, 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 let's see, ancillary matters of, of Galatians. Today we are beginning to get into... Some of the meat of it, although we did, even with verse 1, we got into a lot of doctrinal meat uh, just with that one or those one or two verses. Tonight we're looking at verses 3 through 5. <clears throat> Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the, e to the will of our God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now the reason we're... One reason we look at this whole, these three verses together is because in the Greek, and I believe even verse 5 is a part of this, it's all one sentence. Uh, Paul was notorious for these really long, complicated sentences. This one isn't as long. Uh, there's one in Ephesians that I want to say is 10 or 12 verses long. It's just one sentence that goes on and on and on. And if you're, if you're an English teacher or remember English teachers in your grammar, to, that gets fun to try to figure out. So we look at this one because it is one, uh, one long sentence um, and, and says a lot. It, he, he, he introduces with grace to you. He is actually going to end Galatians with the same phrase, grace to you. Uh, now, there are a, a number of different theories on why he did it. One, it was a very common um, salutation. As a matter of fact, the Greek word for grace, which I believe is charis, is very similar to the Greek word for hello, which was karie. They, they were very similar, so it was not uncommon for someone to say grace, when they, when they were saying hello, it was just a common salutation. Um, sounds awkward to us, but in Spanish, I don't know if you know this, this is no charge. Uh, when you answer the phone in, in, in Mexico or in Spanish, you don't say hola, you don't say hello, you say bueno, you say good. It's good to talk to you. So, you know, interesting how we have different salutations, different hellos. Um, that's what this was. It's, it was uh, an hello uh, to uh, his, his friends here. But because he puts it at the beginning and the end, there, there seems to be more to it than just hello. One, one theologian said that he, the reason he did that, the reason he bracketed it the way he did, was to make it fit in the worship service. That they could begin, he could begin reading this letter, whoever read it to the church could begin it with this... Uh, this opening salutation, grace and peace, kind of a, a little little rhyme, a poem, a sing song, uh, uh, a, a standard introduction, and then end it with a standard introduction. They could go right into the offering or whatever they did next. If they were Baptist, they they had the offering next. But uh, that's how he began it, grace. But more deeply here, grace is the need. It's the need of the people. Grace to you, Paul says. Grace, that, that, that grace, that unmerited favor. Grace, uh, getting what we don't deserve. Which is deeper than just 
this salutation because he is going to get into, Paul is, this idea that they could work for their salvation. We're going to learn that that was the false teaching that was coming in, that you were only kind of saved or you were only partially saved until you did certain things. And for these folks, the the false teachers here, the, the certain things was actually you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. They were called Judaizers. Uh, that that was what that was the, the term that was used regularly for them. He's emphasizing right here at the beginning, grace is is all you need, not works. Grace, that's the need to you. And then peace, he says, which is the result. That's from God. Peace from God. So he opens it up. Grace to you, the thing you need. Peace from God, the result of that grace. Because, again, if we consider the situation, uh, they they were arguing over grace. And this argument was leading to a lack of peace. There's never peace in a church when there's a fight. And that's what they were seeing in these churches in Galatia. They were seeing these false teachers come in, teach things that weren't true, and seeing this and seeing war, for lack of a better term, at least as, as far as maybe the opposite of peace. And he's telling them, if you get the grace right, folks, you get the peace that comes with it. If you understand what you have, then you will truly experience the result of it. So he says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just like we said back in chapter or in verse one, where he says in verse one, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. We talked about one preposition for both Jesus and God. He does the same thing here when he says where the grace and the peace come from. Uh, grace to you and peace from, there's our preposition, God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The only difference between uh, verse 1 and verse 2, or verse 3 rather, is he inverts them. In verse 1 it was Jesus and God. In verse 3 it was God then Jesus. He's just smart. He's just going back and saying, okay... You're, you're going you're gonna to expect me to say it the same way the second time because you're going to say, oh, well, it always has to be that way. Jesus always has to come first. We like our traditions, don't we? We like our ways of saying things. This is the way it's supposed to be done. And we would latch on to that. I mean, there are people who will not call, will not use the phrase Jesus Christ as if it were his last name. It's not his last name. It's a title. But you have to say Jesus the Christ. Or we have to. We can't say the Greek word Christ. We have to say the Hebrew word Messiah. You know, that we, we latch on to these ways. And I don't know that Paul had in mind, oh, we've got to, I've got to make sure I do this differently each time. But he did. And I think that informs us that we just need to be careful about putting too much emphasis on hey, it was said exactly this way, so we have to say it this way, but it also frees us to understand that God comes first, Jesus comes second, but Jesus comes first and God comes second because they are one. Again, this is the unity of Jesus and God. That one preposition tells us of that unity. And we need to, again, deep theology in just a phrase. Paul was the master of this. 
and you know, it wasn't really Paul, it was Jesus writing this through through Paul. So he says, grace to you, peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, some people say, see, it says Jesus Christ, never Christ Jesus. We never say it, but yeah, whatever. Um, let's move on. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. We're going to camp out here for just a second. And I sure did. Forgot something I was going to bring to talk about, so I won't talk about it quite as much as I thought I was going to. Uh, this phrase, this passage is, well, we, we see three things here, uh, three aspects of, of the source of grace. We see Jesus, we see the atonement presented in, in three different ways. First of all, we see that verb gave. He gave himself. Now, that gave clearly sacrificed. Uh, he sacrificed himself for our sins. I'm going to talk to you briefly about penal substitutionary atonement. Now you're going to get your, your, your $5 word lesson tonight. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal. So the penal code, law, that, that, the courtroom, that should be something that, that immediately comes to mind. Um, that's part of what Jesus did. It is that making right, uh, uh, that, that declaring not guilty, as if our sins had never occurred. That's that penal part. It was you uh, on, the, on the stand and Jesus declaring you not guilty. But substitutionary, that part allows the first part. God could have, we assume, said... You're forgiven. Just blanket statement. You're forgiven. But that's not what he did. He provided a substitute. He still required the payment that I talk about after every sermon on Sunday morning. Uh, the, the, the wages of sin. That, 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 those wages were still required. But what God did was provide provided a substitute. Now, all of this to you may sound like, well, yeah, Michael, that, that's what we... Oh, yeah, sure. Well, we say that because we're Baptists. This makes perfect sense to us because we're Baptists. But not every denomination, not every Christian around the world believes in penal substitutionary atonement. That's not what they would call it. Uh, they would nuance it. Uh, they would argue with different aspects of it. And what I was going to bring was all the other ways that people define the atonement. And that's what we're doing here. We're defining the atonement. And I, I, I won't be able to do all of it for you. I'll do what I can from memory. But penal substitutionary atonement, it was one of the things we need to understand about it was that it was voluntary. He says, who gave himself. Nobody made Jesus go to the cross. It was the will of the Father. It was the plan for from all time. But there are a number of verses where it, it is clear that Jesus gave himself. He, he, he gave up his glory. He humbled himself. He came to earth in order to do this. It was his choice. He said, no one takes my life. I give it. It was, it was voluntary. That's important because one of the other views of the atonement is that Jesus never intended to go to the cross. He never intended to to die. It was it was an accident. 
It was uh, maybe useful, but probably not even useful. There are views of the atonement, views of what happened on the cross, and some of those views completely ignore the cross other than it just being an example of how evil people are. That's all it was. Well, that's not the case. It was not. It was no surprise to Jesus. It was no uh, second uh, choice. Oh shoot! Well, I'm going to the cross. God, we got to rethink this whole thing. Uh, it was. It was nothing like that. It was the purpose. He came in order to give himself as a sacrifice. It was voluntary. The other thing the cross shows us in in giving himself is that it shows the tragic nature of our sin. God takes our sin very seriously. It is, it, it's no, he, he doesn't wink at our sin. He doesn't just, oh, kids will be kids, right? You know, he doesn't say that. It is tragic. It is horrible. It is, it is deserving of death. But he loves us so much that he did not, though our death is required, our death is the wage of sin. He provided that substitute to take our place on that cross. So it, it is. It, if you doubt the um, the severity, if you doubt the the impact of your sinfulness, look at the cross, and that will tell you exactly how horrible your sin is. We sinned. Christ died. That's that's penal substitutionary atonement. We sinned. Christ died for those sins. We committed the crime. Jesus paid for that crime. It was Him. It was His choice. It was God's plan. He is sufficient. That's another aspect of penal substitutionary atonement. It, it is He was sufficient for our salvation. You or I, I think we've talked about this before, maybe on a Sunday morning, you and I could not die for everybody. Our sacrifice, though noble it may be, would not have been enough to save the world because we were, would not be sufficient. We are human, but we're not divine. We are human, but we are also sinful. Jesus was human and divine and sinless. You, you, you work those three things together and you get a sacrifice that is sufficient for our salvation. Now, some of the other views... Uh, like I said, I'm not going to remember all of these, uh, but I'll, I'll give you just a couple I can think of. One of them was uh, called the ransom theory. And let me, let me say that all of these other theories of atonement, for the most part, pick out a few verses, and they sound good, but they ignore other parts of the Bible. Penal substitutionary atonement gets at all the different aspects of how Jesus on the cross, the atonement, is described. Ransom view says we were bought back from Satan. We were, uh, there was uh, something that was owed and Jesus paid that for us. But that's kind of where it stops. Now, that we sing songs, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Uh, ransom is a common phrase or common word in the Bible that talks about what Jesus did. However, that's not the only thing he did. He didn't just buy us back, because if you see that, it, it, it leaves out that substitution part. It's just like it was a payment, but Jesus wasn't uh, didn't take our place. It just paid a, it paid a price. 
we would we would say, uh, you know, who who was it told us this morning had been around since Lindbergh? Somebody told us out here picking on somebody else that oh somebody said he's not in here so I can't pick on him. Harry had been around since Charles Lind remembered Charles Lindbergh. That's what we were told. Um, well, that I don't think he's that old, but. If you remember, Charles Lindbergh, nobody here remembers. If, you, if you've read your history about Charles Lindbergh, you remember his, his baby was, uh, his child was abducted. And there was a ransom put out for the child, and they either didn't meet it in time or something, and the, the baby was actually, or the child was actually killed. They would have paid the ransom, though. They would have given money to get the child back. Well, that's not substitution. Substitution is put me in the place of the child. So you see how there's there's a to say that God ransomed us, paid a debt monetarily. It wasn't money, but if we go with that, well, of course. I mean, God had has everything. He could pay that ransom, no big deal. It leaves out some stuff. That's ransom theory. Uh, Satisfaction theory is another one. There was a a it's it's similar to ransom theory. Um, there was a, there were wrongs that had to be righted. Righted. Yeah. Uh, there, there was there was something that had to be satisfied. There was there was a gaping hole. And in this in this case, what they're getting at was there was a hole in God's glory. Our sinfulness steals from God's glory. So the satisfaction theory says when Jesus died, he he filled up that hole for us. He he satisfied that lack of glory again. Jesus died to the glory of God. We are saved to the glory of God. There, there is something in Scripture about that. None of these theories are based on wild ideas pulled from uh, a tree somewhere. They are based on Scripture, but they just don't quite go far enough. Satisfaction theory is uh, one of them. Uh, governmental theory is another one that that strictly focuses on that penal part, that 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 uh, that that government, the the um, the courtroom drama. It was developed by a guy who was a lawyer, as a matter of fact. He was a lawyer and a theologian. And, but again, he didn't go far enough that, yes, this courtroom drama occurred and Jesus, uh, through his uh, death on the cross, fixed the the law issue. But, but there, again, no substitution, no no, no ransom in there, and, and ransom is a part of it. There, there, there are things missing. Probably the worst view uh, of all of them that that I think leaves the most out is called the example theory. And example theory is used by a lot of pacifists. Um, the book I read on the uh, the ransom theory in seminary was written by a, a Mennonite. They are tend to be pacifists. Amish tend to be uh, are pacifists. And the, the, the example theory says they're the ones that say the crucifixion was horrible. God would never sanction such violence, especially to his own son. So to say that Jesus came in order to die on the cross is something that God would never do. We can never say that. It was an unhappy accident. But we can learn from Jesus because of how he approached it. He still loved people. He still forgave people. And therefore, if we 
love and forgive people who hurt us the way Jesus loved and forgave people that hurt him, then we will be like Jesus and therefore we are atoned for. Uh, there are a couple of others now that I, I can't recall at the moment. Um, but that gives you an idea of why we as evangelical Baptists embrace penal substitutionary atonement. And if you're not a Calvinist, and that's okay if you are, but if you're not, you kind of are because Calvin was the one who really, John Calvin was the one who really solidified this and, and, and developed it and, and, and brought it all together. And uh, that, again, that's just for your, uh, that's, that's free too. So those, that gives you some ideas. So when people ask, well, how does Jesus save you? Oh, well, he ransomed me from my sins. Well, he sure did, but he did more than that. Well, how does Jesus save you? Well, he, he, uh, he satisfied God's glory. Well, sure he did. He absolutely did, but, but it's more than that. Well, how did, how did Jesus save you? Well, he, he went to court for me and he fought for me and he won. Absolutely, he sure did, but, but there's more to it. How did Jesus save you? He died for me in my place, taking my punishment that I justly deserve, and imputing his perfection, his righteousness on me. That's penal substitutionary. And you see how it covers all of it. And then I'm supposed to, because of my relationship with Jesus, follow his example. And there we have the example theory of the atonement. We live like him. So hopefully that you know gives you some some ideas of, of, of some alternate views I always like to present alternate views of things for y'all I think y'all can handle it uh, I, you need to hear it because these are views that are out there right now this isn't these aren't theories that died 500 years ago this is what we could meet at um, Eastern Orthodox churches uh, with the uh, uh, which one is theirs? Ransom theory, I think. Maybe satisfaction. Uh, the Catholic Church holds to more of the governmental view. Um, uh, uh, let's see. Yeah, that's all I can come up with at the moment. But you, you get the idea. All right, so we move on. Uh, the second aspect of this, this source of grace. Uh, I told you there were three. The first is that he, uh, is that he gave, a, gave himself... First time I'm using this PowerPoint on my iPad, and I'm, I'm struggling here. Uh, he gave himself. He sacrificed himself. The second aspect is that it was to rescue us from this present evil age. There we go. First off, we see it, it is ultimate rescue. We have been saved from hell. We have been saved from the punishment by his substitution, by his rendering us not guilty. Um that's the ultimate rescue. But there's more than... Uh, Paul is actually talking about both here. Saved us from this present evil age. He does not want us to miss the fact that we are saved immediately from any number. We're saved from our sins. We are saved, and I just have some examples up there, uh, materialism. We're saved from our race, our gender, our class. Those are things that he's going to get to later on in Galatians, discuss those very issues. We're saved from hopelessness, grace and peace to you. Peace uh, because we have hope. We know what's coming. That was an immediate result. There's a, I, I, if I haven't used this phrase with you before, 
I will tonight, and you will hear it regularly, so uh, just get used to it. Already, not yet. We already are saved. We are being saved, but we are not yet fully saved. We are already saved. I have all the benefits of salvation right now, but the reality is I'm not in heaven. I'm not with Jesus. So there's more to it. But it is as if, if we read Scripture, right now, in God's eyes, I am currently everything I will be because I'm saved. All of my sins are forgiven. I already have my spot in heaven. So it's it's just like my my spot's there. The, The only thing that's not there is me. But in every way, I'm ready for it. Every way except my sanctification. I'm not dead yet. Justification when we're saved. Sanctification till we die. We're made holy. We're made more righteous. We're made more Christ-like. Glorification when we die. That's another way of looking at this already, not yet. We are already justified. And our spot is saved in heaven. But we are not yet glorified. We are also not yet as sanctified as we will be. That's what this rescue from the present evil age does for us. It provides our justification. It provides our sanctification works in us. But it also guarantees our glorification. What's coming, that not yet. So that's the second aspect of of, uh, Jesus giving himself for our sins, this this source of grace. And then the uh, third... Oh, yeah, there was one more word. I missed it. Despair. Uh, Another... Uh, thing we're saved from now. The third aspect is that it's according to the will of our God and Father. It was very important uh, for us, for for Paul to say this. Uh, Paul did not know who Origen was. Origen came along a few years after Paul, maybe a hundred or so. Origen, we owe a lot to. Uh, Alexandrian, I believe, northern Egypt. He was the, uh, if I remember correctly, he was the first one to put together what books should be in the New Testament. He was the first one to make a list and say, these are what we'd call canonical books. He was the first guy to do that. Now, he didn't have all that we have in the New Testament because he didn't like some of them. To be honest, some of them were too Jewish for him. He felt that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were two different gods. He completely, for the most part, rejected the Old Testament. So that's not the same God. The God of the New Testament is the only God. That's the loving God. That's the true God. We don't know what that Old Testament God was. That's not him. We don't believe that. So that's why I say we some of the things Origen did were, thanks, guy, but most of it like, "Mm, no, we're not going to hang out there. Paul understood that possibility because this phrase, according to the will of God and uh, God and uh, will of our God and Father, is setting us up immediately to understand there's no harsh father and loving son. He's not allowing us to come into this and say, wow, God sure was mean to kill Jesus. 
the example theory, the, 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 the Mennonites, the, the Amish, the pacifists who would say God would never do that. But wasn't Jesus nice to go through it for us? He was, he was anticipating that argument and he wasn't going to allow it. This, this whole thing, this whole atonement deal, the cross, all of it was uh, according to the will of God and our will of our God and Father. God controlled it all. No happy or unhappy accident that Jesus was crucified. That was a plan from the beginning. That was always the plan. Jesus prayed, I think he prayed hopeful in the garden. If it is possible, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. His flesh did not want to go through what he knew was coming on that cross. He knew what the next day held. It was no surprise. It was no shock. He went to it willingly, voluntarily. And the Bible says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Though he did it voluntarily, I hesitate to say he did it joyfully. He did it willingly. He did it obediently. But he did it knowing that the end was worth it. But he knew the end was worth it because he trusted his father who controlled it all. Uh, Pat, if you could go forward. Two bumps, please, ma'am. A little ahead of you. There you go. Um, so he, 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 could, he could pray in that garden... Your will, not mine. Let this cup pass if it's possible, but your will, not mine, because he knew the God, the Father, who controlled it. It was never, uh, it was no shock to him. It was no shock to God. And then Paul ends up, after giving this much more succinct explanation of of the atonement than I just did, uh, with praise God. Now that would... Really, Paul, I mean, you, you really you basically just described the horrible death, the 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 agony that he went through. And you're going to praise God. <laughs> Absolutely. Because in our discussion, the whole reason we study and we and, and, and Calvin came up with uh, penal substitutionary atonement, the, the, the reason we reject merely an example theory or merely a ransom theory or merely a satisfaction theory of the atonement is because they don't uh, encapsulate enough of what Jesus did. And when we look at the whole thing, when we understand what all God did through His Son on the cross, how can we not get to that part and say, well, praise God that He voluntarily did what I cannot do for myself. Now, the, the atonement is not uh, violence to, 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 uh, to fear. Uh, it's not, as those guys said, go, uh, go ahead and bump ahead, Pat. Um, one more. The cross, the atonement is not violence that we should be afraid of. Again, that's why he, he says, according to the will of our God and Father, no harsh, mean God, no loving son. That's not, he's making sure we understand that that is not the case. God is to be praised for this because 
the cross is not something that we look at and say, wow, God sure is mean. I don't want to cross this guy. Look what he did to his own son. That's not not the case. That's not what we're to get out of the cross. What we are to get out of the cross is that it is love to be praised. So Paul can describe what Jesus did for us, gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Praise him for what he did. Praise him for the love that was shown on the cross. Love shown on the cross. That, that, that destroys the, oh my goodness, mean God did that. That was love on the cross. That was love for you and for me. It, it would not have been love. It would not have been, it would have been a, a sadistic God who enjoyed violence if Jesus couldn't have saved us all by his death on the cross. If it was just God doing it, and the, I believe that the violence would be more heinous if it was an accident that God didn't see coming, and we are supposed to respond, well, that sure was nice of Jesus not to strike down all those people. I think I'll be like him. That seems like a waste, uh, that seems like a, a sadistic, violent God with no purpose. But when we look at the fact that Jesus, by that death, by that horrible death, saves us from our sins, we see purpose in the death, then no longer is it uh, violence to fear. It is love to be praised. It is purposeful. Therefore, it is useful, important, and actually loving. And the praising of God here is the immediate result of the knowledge of the work of Christ. So even before Paul gets started, and next week he begins with, I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away. I'm amazed that you are bewitched. I'm going to give you a, a clue to what he says at the beginning of this, this passage for next week. I'm amazed that you are bewitched. You've been hypnotized. You, you, you followed some craziness, is what he's saying. Before even he gets to that, he says, See the cross. Be amazed by the cross. And when you understand what Jesus did for you, my people, you cannot help but to praise the God who saved you. And in praising God, and in, 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 in uh, ascribing Him the glory that is, is necessary, Paul is also already preaching to them. There's no glory in the cross if you have to do something else after the cross to earn your salvation. It was a waste. It was forgetful or mean or sadistic or unaware God allowing something bad to happen to His Son. If you have to do something else to get saved, but glory to God, the cross was sufficient. And he says all that in three verses. And we haven't even gotten to the meat of the letter yet. So, y'all, we're going to be in this book for a while. 